Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watt and I am here with Callum Roper. Hello there everyone, welcome. Ollie Wallen. Hi there everyone. And Bradley Allsop. Hi folks. And this week we will be discussing uh, the biggest news story in the world. Uh, for once it's not that pesky little virus. Um, it's about guns and bullets and uh, religious extremists and Western imperialism. Yes, it's that story that uh, you all know. It's the one that uh, everyone's been talking about. Yes, it's that one. It's Afghanistan. Of course, it is uh, Joe Biden's decision uh, uh, some months ago to pull out uh, the US forces from Afghanistan. And of course, once US forces went, uh, the rest of NATO uh, really only being there in, in uh, the beginning in obligation to their NATO treaty had to go as well for practical reasons as well, of course. Uh, and, of course, once we are done with that, we will talk about COP26, uh, the world's latest uh, climate change conference happening in Scotland. Uh, very, very soon, very, very important uh, for the world. So very, two very big meaty topics there. Um, as I say, we'll uh, start off by talking about Afghanistan. And uh, uh, I just want to say from a, a personal uh, point of view, it's uh, kind of surreal uh, seeing uh, this war come to an end. Uh, I don't know how Bradley will feel in particular, because we're around the same age, but um, Obviously, this all started because of 9-11, um, which is one of my earliest memories. Uh, I remember, uh, I don't think we were pulled back from school early as such, but I just remember coming home and seeing, well, being able to see nothing else. I, I think being a child, I couldn't really, I was only eight years old, I couldn't really properly process it. I, was a, I seem to recall I was a bit annoyed that my normal cartoons had been cancelled. Uh, initially um but then you've you just had and i've never seen this before or since every single channel had the same item you literally couldn't watch anything else like lots of big things have happened since obviously even terrorist attacks in the uk and this hasn't happened but uh, all five of the main channels and a good proportion i think you get to look pretty hard to find any digital channels as well such as they were back then uh, in 2001, uh, to find a channel that wasn't talking about terrorist attack on New York uh, on September the 11th. So, biggest news story uh, in the world with obviously huge uh, repercussions. Um, and I just, I think it's important to note first of all why uh, why the UK was there um, because. There's been a lot of talk in the last uh, in the last week since Kabul fell to the Taliban um, after 20, 20 years after they were toppled by the Western Coalition by NATO um, about why we were there and I've been watching uh, the, there's been a selection of MPs you know the, this war went on long enough for there to be several MPs in Parliament who served in Afghanistan. Uh, and I've also seen lots of interviews with former squaddies as well, um, expressing their feelings. And it, it's very clear 
from what they're saying that the way that the war was sort of sold to them um, is that this was a war to protect the human rights of the Afghan people and particularly women's rights as well. Um, and seeing the Western powers pull out and the Taliban take over so quickly is obviously very painful for them um, because that's their perspective and obviously they've sacrificed limbs, uh, you know, they've sacrificed friends uh, and uh, obviously they've suffered mental consequences as well. Um, PTSD is uh, extremely common amongst uh, ex-servicemen and women as we know um, and they're now searching for meaning and I'll come back to that uh, in a moment but I think something that people really need to understand about Afghanistan is that, you know, there are many horrible regimes in the world, unfortunately, um, just as extreme as the Taliban. You could look at places like Saudi Arabia, you could look at Yemen, um, and obviously we've not invaded there. In fact, some of them are actually our allies. The fundamental reason that we were in Afghanistan to begin with is because of the NATO treaty. Um, the United States, this is obviously a treaty that was set up originally to face off with the Soviet Union. And the idea is that if one country is attacked, then all countries in the NATO treaty uh, will retaliate. Um, and when 9-11 happened, uh, the United States said this is an attack against us uh, by a foreign power. And they invoked the treaty, obliging uh, all other NATO members to come back in, uh, go into Afghanistan uh, alongside the United States as part of this international coalition. And you'll, you'll notice as well that, you know, there are dates as well, very recent dates for, you know, lots of um, countries that you wouldn't even think about really uh, being involved in a liberal intervention, such as Luxembourg, for instance, who had some troops in Afghanistan. Um, until uh, a, a few weeks ago, uh, and they were there because of the NATO treaty. So it was never, from a, a, a purely legal, uh, geopolitical standpoint, it was never about the the, the rights of the Afghan people or, or Afghan women. Um, it was entirely uh, about geopolitics. It was about uh, getting bin Laden, whatever that meant, you know, Osama bin Laden, the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks, um, as it turned out, of course, that was uh, that meant extrajudici extrajudicially murdering him. Um, and, of course, there's uh, an irony in that as well, in that uh, when they found him, it wasn't even in Afghanistan, it was in Pakistan, um, in an in a, uh, operation that they didn't even ask the uh, Pakistan government to, to authorise. They just went ahead and did it. Um, so that makes the operation... Uh, have a little bit less value, perhaps. Um, and the other reason, of course, was to, to topple the regime, the Taliban, which obviously had hosted um, Al-Qaeda, which was the organisation which orchestrated the attacks. Um, so Ben Laden was obviously killed, I think it was in 2014. Um, mission accomplished. Um, it took them a bit, bit, longer than they, a bit longer than they meant to. Um, and so what I find fascinating about Afghanistan in many ways is that, you know, for the last six, seven years, we, we've been in Afghanistan, but for no real particular purpose. 
um, vague promises of maybe rebuilding the country. Obviously, as we can see, that didn't happen. Building up the Afghan military, obviously that didn't happen either. Um, and, you know, if you, if you look at Afghanistan as well, and just compare it as well to Iraq, I think it's useful to compare it to Iraq because um, we, we know and have known really from the beginning that the Iraq war was a farce from the beginning. You know, the two justifications were there are weapons of mass destruction there and we're going there to overthrow a brutal dictator. And he was a brutal dictator, of course, Sandal Hussein, but really it was uh, an excuse as we know, to secure the oil reserves in Iraq. In the case of Afghanistan, yeah, there are some minerals there. Obviously, as we know, there's uh, there's a lot of uh, 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 opium production as well, which I'm sure the West probably didn't really plan uh, to flood, or perhaps, uh, perhaps they did, who knows. Um, but there aren't really any strategic resources that are unique to Afghanistan. Um, it's not, um, ever since the fall of the British Raj, it's not been a particularly important geopolitical area, at least not for Britain. Uh, it used to be a buffer zone between the British Empire and the Russian Empire. It's not anymore. Um, of course, it's strategically important for China, India, Pakistan, Iran, and so on, all of these countries that surround it. But it's not uh, geopolitically important for countries on the other side of the world. Um, so really, there, there is no reason, no reason to justify uh, a military occupation uh, on the other side of the world um, at, 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 at enormous expense. And also, I think, just sort of uh, finally, I suppose, given this catastrophic failure, I, I think I'd like to... Uh, I, I, I will, I'll ask Bradley in a minute, first of all, um, whether this experience chimes with you, but I'm, I'm interested in... Uh, hearing Callum's opinion as well, uh, because I think you, I mean, we've all, uh, we've studied politics, and f for me, like in the noughties, for instance, you know, Afghanistan was you know the big topic. You know, um, we would study the Rwanda genocide, for instance, as an example of how the international community failed to intervene to stop. A humanitarian disaster, um, and we'd also look at uh, Yugoslavia, or more particularly Kosovo, uh, in the nineties, where the international community did intervene to stop a massacre. And these two examples were sort of frequently pulled out to justify, um, mainly Western powers. Let's be honest, intervening um, with military force to to stop some kind of atrocity happen and then rebuild the country. What we've seen you know, since then is obviously we've seen Iraq, we've seen Afghanistan, we've seen Syria, we've seen Libya. All of these are examples where, um, as, as David Cameron actually put it in the case of Libya, um, we've, uh, although he was trying to make the opposite point initially, uh, he said, you can't drop democracy on people from 10,000 feet about a week before he tried to drop democracy on people from 10,000 feet. Um, we now have a, a bloody history of trying to impose liberal democracy um, on other countries. And however well-meaning that thought may have been, this is probably the end of that. 
uh, idea, that sort of uh, that sort of ideal that you can uh, build a stable uh, and and human rights respecting democracy with force. Um, and it comes at enormous costs. It's come at the cost of over 400 British lives in our case, uh, thousands of American lives, and of course many, many, many more uh, Afghans as well in this case. Um, and apparently um, all for nothing because the Taliban are now back in charge just as they were 20 years ago. Um, maybe uh, some of their behaviour, as people have put it, uh, might be moderated by a need to make deals with China and India and so on. But um, really, I think realistically, the, the 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 consensus from anyone serious that I've seen talking about this is that the best that the world can sort of hope for uh, is for a, a Saudi Arabia type regime, which obviously isn't uh, is is very authoritarian and uh, and and uh, certainly not a liberal democracy in any uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So it's a, a collective human tragedy, um, which we have many many lessons to learn from. Um, and the other thing that concerns me as well is just cycling back to those veterans who and how, as I say, searching for meaning, those guys are going to become very interesting. They're going to become, I think, a small but significant, you know, not some significance in terms of numbers, but I think it's significant in terms of emotional weight when we're talking about British politics because they're not just military veterans now they are afghan veterans um, who fought for this cause and i think how they come to terms with it um, whether they decide that what they were doing in afghanistan was righteous and politicians just let them down or whether it was flawed from the beginning i think will have huge implications for british politics and british foreign policy in particular uh, in years to come. Um, I know I've spoken to this for uh, quite some time, um, but I'll just I'll, I'll ask Bradley how, how how you feel about it first. What's your perspective on it? I mean, yeah, I think I think I find it really difficult. I think actually, um, I think in in general, my tendency is is that I'm a pacifist, um, but not not in an absolute sense. So. Uh, I think there will be times when, you know, taking some form of violent action in defence of various ideals will, will be necessary. Um, you know, the, the classic example is always something like World War Two. You know, I think that the, so I'm not an absolutist pacifist. I think you know I'm happy to contemplate um, some form of military intervention, but I think it should always be you know the absolute last option. You know, we, we should try all forms of diplomatic and political solutions first so I'm not I, I don't know if the lesson from this for me is necessarily that we can never contemplate military intervention anywhere ever again to protect human rights I, I don't I don't think I would take such an absolutist lesson from this um but it is quite clear the, the way that things were handled in Afghanistan has, has not helped the people of Afghanistan in the long run um, I th- I do also think it's not it's not entirely fair to say that nothing was achieved. Um, I do think there are. I mean, and I'm by no means an expert on on the conflict, but there were 
it does seem that there are at least some freedoms gained, even if it now looks like it's going to be a temporary gain. Um, so, you know, there's a generation of women in certain parts of the country, and by no means all, um, that were able to access schooling, that were able to participate in, in everyday life. Um, and in, in general, um, I think probably a, a bit more in the way of freedom for, for many citizens in Afghanistan um, post post the, the first Taliban reign. So, yeah, I, I don't know if it's fair to say that absolutely nothing was achieved in, in, in Afghanistan. But that, however, is not also that that's not to vindicate what was done there. I think I think there were perhaps other ways we could have tried to achieve that. Um, and looking at what we should be doing now, in terms of you know sh- should we have, should Biden have withdrew troops or not? Um, it's it's clear there were many things wrong with with, with how Afghanistan was being run uh, for it to have fallen so quickly and so decisively to the Taliban. That does not signal a healthy, robust, strong uh, government at all. So, yeah, I, I I'm still trying to figure out what I think the lesson here is because I absolutely agree that the idea of forcing and imposing Western values on another country at the at the barrel of a gun, um, it does not have a great history. Uh, it very rarely succeeds. I think we're seeing the, the limits and the failures of that approach now in Afghanistan. Um, but at the same time, you know, I also find quite concerning the rhetoric that you see amongst some um, of, well, you know, it, it's their mess now. They they didn't fight for it um, and now they need to. I think that that's quite a, a concerning and very un- unsympathetic narrative that we're seeing emerging as well. So I, th- I think I think what I'm trying to say is clearly the approach that we took in Afghanistan did not work. And, and there were many people at the time that said it wouldn't. And and the and the death toll and the suffering as a result of it, you know, is is appalling. And and you know, how, how do you begin to weigh up things like, um, you know, some some increasements in, in in women's rights and and you know perhaps political freedoms and things? How do you begin to weigh that against the cost of, of the deaths and the suffering that that's happened over the, over the last twenty years? Um, I, I don't know how you begin to calculate that, but I think we should be striving for a politics and a, and a foreign policy that. That tries to avoid that cost for what freedoms we are going to help other other countries gain and, and what development they are going to gain. And I suppose the other thing for me is that what what happens in those countries if we do decide to intervene in some way in other countries in the future, it has to be driven by what the people there want, and they have to be in the driving seat. And 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 anything we aim to do should have should have as its aim empowering you know ordinary citizens in those countries and i don't think even though there were some modest gains in freedoms perhaps i i don't think that that was necessarily what what i mean it certainly wasn't the intent of, of many people involved in the invasion of afghanistan um so yeah I, I i'm still trying to figure out exactly what the lessons here are but certainly the, the approach of uh yeah quite violent military intervention by western forces in afghanistan has, has been an abject failure Callum. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting time we live in, in in terms of the approach of of the West to interventions going forward. Um, increasingly, I think we we will see less boots on the ground. Uh, the lessons from Afghanistan is that the, uh, the 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 British Army certainly was was nowhere near prepared for for desert warfare. Um, Equally, it wasn't really prepared for the consequences of such a long-term occupation of a country. Um, 
Joe Biden said the other day, this this whole war was not about nation building. It was not about democracy, but it was about removing the threat of terror attacks on the mainland US. Um, so that's the motives. And I'm, I'm glad he actually said that. And it's, you know, not this um, people tend to use the responsibility to protect uh, this this UN um, notion that uh, signatories to this agreement should intervene in countries where there is a, uh, a a threat to human rights or a or the risk of a genocide. Um, they haven't used this as a that as an as an excuse. But although at the time there was the argument that we should be intervening on those grounds, and there is a debate to be had on how do we um, avert crises going forward in terms of human rights, in terms of preventing. Um, genocides in terms of preventing mass atrocities. But the question is, um, for the West now going forward, as I said, how do we intervene if we want to intervene? Increasingly, I think it's going to be um, from the air. Um, you're going to see the use of missiles and drones and, and uh, satellite technology. There's going to be a lot less of a, of a use of boots on the ground. Um, which is fundamentally how how do you then, <laughs> I suppose, encourage people to engage with you if you are sitting in in the UK, uh, in in a in a very secure room in Whitehall or wherever it is, pressing buttons and launching bombs because that's certainly not how you uh, you bring about a, a positive change or at least a, start a dialogue where you can rebuild a country. I think this has been a failure on on our part to. Um, to really commit to giving the, the people of Afghanistan a better future. Um, we didn't really offer an alternative uh, to the Taliban. What, what we said was we would come in, we would remove them and then go. Uh, we removed them, we went, but they certainly didn't disappear. So now what do we do? What do we do now? Do we try and engage with them? Do we accept that that's the way things are? Or do we just let them go on to their devices? And I think that that's, that's, the, that's the debate now. I personally think that we need to find a way of engaging with certainly the people of, of Afghanistan to ensure that they realise they haven't been left behind by the West. Um, again, how we do that. We uh, offer aid where we can to the people and make sure it gets to people. Um, but also we accept refugees. And I think that that's the next question as well. What do we do with the refugees? We absolutely have to accept them. We, we've spoken on this podcast before about the, the, the attitude towards refugees and, and, and people fleeing wars and, and human rights crises uh, in the Middle East and beyond. And sort of the the appalling, I suppose, the appalling view of of these people that somehow that they could have stayed put and they they can survive. I see people now in this situation realizing that we should be taking on more refugees. So why can't we use this as a turning point for our policy towards refugees going forward as well? Why can't we say that the situation in Afghanistan is awful? But we've also got to recognise that, that there are a handful of countries in Africa, in the Middle East, that are undergoing the same sort of crises, the same sort of situation, and yet they're not as worthy because we haven't seen it plastered all over the TV. 
that's what we need to be doing going forward. So the the new global Britain that we like to talk about should be one less of bombing people and forcing them from their homes. And the first move that we go for is is attack, attack, attack. We should now be looking at more of a, of a human approach to things. How can we engage with these people? How can we accept refugees? How can we make people's lives better without just bombing them? Because that is that is our, our sort of gut instinct uh, as, as a country. If we if we don't understand how our society works, if we see it as incompatible to the Western way, we must bomb it to oblivion and install our view of, of, of a westernized democracy. And democracy is great. I'd love to see democracy installed, but there is an issue here where we where we are are so keen to just bomb people and and that's the difference that we need to be looking at i just want to come back to you know i mentioned libya earlier um and i thought that was a really interesting time um because there was uh, this belief i think in the certainly the british political establishment that uh, something had to be done and that um but having had the recent experience of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, there was a reluctance to have um, boots on the ground and so on. And that's why they did what uh, you were suggesting, uh, Callum, which was drone strikes, airstrikes, that sort of thing. And obviously that didn't work either. Um, so, I mean, I'm very, I would be very resistant to the idea of any sort of military intervention being appropriate. I, 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 Syria was happening when I was, I think in my, uh, I think it started when I was in my first year of university uh, doing international relations. Um, and I tried to argue at the time, well, the only sort of legitimate military intervention you could have is some sort of um UN mission, United Nations mission, just flood the country with blue berets. Um, but over time, you know, I, I, I feel like that wouldn't even uh, be sufficient. War, uh, bombs and bullets never leads to stable uh, democracies it, it, in the long run. Uh, there has to be a, a, a civil solution. Um, but obviously, in the short term, you're, you're quite right. Um, when it comes to refugees, there are many people who have obviously uh, served uh, the Western powers in Afghanistan, uh, and all of them need to be uh, brought out to safety. Um, whatever you think about the, the war itself, um, those people really deserve to be brought out, and it would be um, morally repugnant, I think. Of, of our governments to abandon them, as I sadly expect, based on Pretty Patel's statements the other day, um, we, we probably will do. Uh, Bradley, do you want to come back? Yeah, j- just to emphasize that. Yeah, I think, I, th- I think, I think we're we're all in agreement that um, that the, the the violent methods that we've employed um, in in Afghanistan, you know, are, are clearly haven't worked. And there's a question of okay, but we don't want to just you know we don't want to just leave Afghans to their fate, as it were. And I think you know the, the question of so what can we do that isn't you know airstrikes that have you know, unbearable civilian casualties and all the rest of it. And um, as you've both pointed out, I think taking being much more um, radical in how many refugees we're willing to accept and the support we're willing to give them. 
Um, not, and not even just in Afghanistan, but but across the world, I think is, is a start. And I think the comments from our Home Secretary and the government over the last week or so um, shows that increasingly we have a government that, uh, on many issues, but particularly immigration, is, is a government that now is is completely devoid of any compassion. Um, there, there's there's no there's no sense of moral obligation to to be outside a limited set of people that have maybe worked for the British government, and even there, you know, if you look at the, the controversy around Dominic Raab, there's been some failings in, in, in even securing their um, exit from Afghanistan. But but clearly now we have we have a, an immigration policy completely devoid of any sort of compassion or moral obligation. Um, so yeah, as a as a very very minimal starting point for the people of Afghanistan, we should be offering much more. Um, you know, a much a bolder sort of set of policies around um, accepting refugees and housing them and supporting them and, and, and welcoming them into our society uh, as, as an absolute minimum. And I, I think the thing that worries me is that not to not to um, segue too hard into our next topic, because that's not my job, but uh, when you look at climate change um, and the wave of dispossession that's coming, uh, wave after wave of dispossession, um, that's going to come our way over the course of this century. Um, that you know the the tens, if not hundreds, of millions of climate refugees that will be um, created by extreme weather events, by droughts, by flooding, and uh, by political instability that follows all those things. Uh, you know we, we're going to have to if if we're going to maintain any semblance of of a humane um, approach to immigration, we're going to have to find a way to accept more refugees um, into developed relatively sheltered uh, western countries we're simply going to have to otherwise we're going to see a humanitarian crisis like nothing we've ever seen before yeah and we will segue onto that uh, topic in a moment um i think it's very clear that uh, as i suggested earlier this the conflict in afghanistan has been going on my entire life really as i say for as for as long as i can really remember um i, I was going to mention as well with some pretty quite quite nasty like youtube videos and 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 uh and uh music videos in retrospect that were going around in the noughties talking about how they were going to go and you know kill the taliban and and, and bin laden and so on and it was very jingoistic um, around 2001, uh, 2003, um, and you know, but throughout that time as well, there have been moral debates about you know about liberal intervention, um, the extent to which it's the apparent obligation. I, for me, it's for me when you're talking about liberal intervention now, um, it. It's just another manifestation for, for me of the white man's burden. Um, this idea that we have to go out and, and civilize the world, um, and I think as we've seen, that's that's not how it works. Um, that that's not how um, that's not how nations become developed by by being forced by by foreign powers. Um, Ollie, do you, do you want to uh, come in into this before we move on to our next topic? Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, you you three in the past thirty minutes have had a more meaningful ba- debate than than what happened in the entire last week, and especially in the the Chamber of Commons last week um, by the MPs in their in their seven hour um, discussion on on Afghanistan or whatever it was. 
it was just a more meaningful outcome from this than than that entire um like media coverage and, and just everything because it, it's just nice to hear some honesty about it to be honest um rather than um what we got which was uh but basically just um not acknowledging the lessons that we should have learned from the last 20 years as as we've said um and yeah i just wanted to reiterate as well the fact that um 20,000 afghan refugees over the next however long uh is is quite frankly pathetic 5,000 in the first year it's five it years was. isn't it? it it's it compared to how many people we actually need and and how many um you know how many other countries are accepting it's just it's not good enough and it's just I can't I kind of sometimes fathom how cool and wicked pretty Patel is. And it's and it's bizarre, isn't it? Because you know she she was challenged on it and she sort of said, oh well, you know we we couldn't possibly we we just couldn't we couldn't take twenty thousand straight away. We we couldn't possibly do that. But then in the same breath, this government will tell us how fantastic global Britain is and how powerful and important and 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 how big an impact on the world stage we can have. And yet they're telling us we can't even house 20,000 refugees in a country of nearly 70 million people. It's it, it's nonsensical and it, you know, it's disingenuous. Um, of course we can house 20,000. We can house many more refugees than that. Of course we can, um, as long as there's the political will there to put the resources behind it that it needs. You're absolutely right, both of you. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you've got to find somewhere to put people. Um, but you know what? Recently, uh, we had the Everybody In scheme during COVID, um, and miraculously, we were able to house every single homeless person in the country. Um, and that's that can be the case for refugees as well. If it comes down to needing to build, you know, some kind of um, you know accommodation or uh, to to look after people, decent accommodation, not just converted barracks. Um, the state can do that. It's got eminent domain. You know, it can. It's compulsory purchase orders. It's a lot easier for the British government to uh, acquire land and to build the necessary facilities than it ever would be for local authorities. And local authorities, by the way, are often taking the lead um, on this on this particular uh, on the issue of refugees. So it's it's shameful that the government uh, just doesn't see things the the same way it, it would seem uh, Callum yeah there, there is an excess of a hundred thousand empty homes in this country I, I think that we can requisition a few of them at a relatively low cost and bring them up to scratch and house people refugees and indeed the homeless it, it's not a it's not a, a difficult issue the, the question is whether there's the political will we have the resources as you say we have very much the resources to do this and already there are the houses there so all that we need to do is pull in the right direction look at people who are people not numbers every single one is a life that needs uh, a new beginning and needs saving from what is a which, which is quickly spiraling into an awful situation and we need to step up and play our part because we're constantly told i'll return to it again we're, we're apparently a global britain well in my opinion a global britain is a Britain that stands up when people need help and accepts them in and opens the door as wide as it possibly will go and gives them shelter over their heads and an opportunity for a better future. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about the sorts of, you know, 
people, the sorts of people who are refugees. You know, we're often talking about people who have, you know, served in the Afghan government. Interpreters are often mentioned as well. You know, anyone who has has the patience to learn more than one language other than their mother tongue um, is obviously someone who has a lot of patience and and, and uh, the ability to learn um, and is quite intelligent. So we will actually be gaining uh, people in the long run who will you know enrich our economy and culture and and, and so on. Um, all of the just common sense arguments in favour of allowing people in, apart from the basic humanity, um, as well, uh, which, as we know, this this government uh, completely lacks and lack of foresight as well, um, which we will uh, see how, of course, that, that ability to see into the future plays out um, with the COP twenty six conference, which as I mentioned earlier, is uh, happening uh, in Scotland. Uh, it's uh, getting into the last chance saloon, really. I mean, obviously, we've been told for uh, a couple of years now, really, that in many respects, it's too late to stop um, that catastrophic climate change, natural disasters happening on a mass scale over the coming years and decades. But of course, it's never really too late in a way to uh, to stop the rots, to make things better, to try and mitigate those effects. Um, what are the signs, uh, Bradley, that uh, this is going to be a successful uh, international conference this month? Well, um, the I, th I think our role is the climate spokesperson for the UK government. Uh, her comments don't fill me with huge confidence. Uh, the, the latest sort of gaff around uh, maybe don't rinse your plates before you put them in the dishwasher and we could and therefore we can all do our bit for climate change i mean you know it, it, it's laughable isn't it she she was quite quite uh, roundly denounced on twitter for it um but it it's just concerning that that the the climate spokesperson for the uk government felt like that that was a significant you know thing to say that that, that needed to be said we're, we're past that um we i think we're past the point of being and this this isn't to say you know people you know don't recycle and, and don't consider your own environment in fact it's not to say don't do that but the idea that we can pin our hopes on that on its own being enough anymore it's clearly the evidence just points towards that not being true it's it's quite clear what we need is sweep a sweeping transformation of, of our politics economics um, and actually our culture in, in many parts of, of at least western democracies um, no, nothing short of that will do, and we've got a very small time in which to do it. Um, the latest IPCC report um, is is very stark reading. Um, I've only read summaries of it so far. I've, I've not read read the official executive summary, but you know it it, it to, to come. You know, it's often the IPCC report is is well not often, but sometimes criticised amongst the environmental movement. For actually being too conservative in its warnings, uh, you know, you think it's a document um, that takes years to, to make each time it's reported. Um, hundreds of scientists at the top of their field are involved, and it actually has to be approved um, by political uh, representatives as well, and um, before it, it's um, published. So you know, every line of text in there is is, is gone over and, and changed and edited. Um, so often that that by its nature, I think, will because it's pleasing so many people. By its nature, a document of that sort is probably going to be on the conservative end of things. 
Um, but even the IPCC reports are you know, sounding the alarm bells in as stark a way as I think it is possible for a scientific community to do so. So it's quite clear we are rapidly running out of time um, and the changes needed are absolutely monumental. So um, am I confident? Uh, certainly not in our government. Um, I think Boris Johnson likes to talk about climate change a lot. I think he is quite keen. What we have at the moment are actually fairly ambitious proposals with, in, compared to other governments, um, but not very much to back them up with at all in terms of concrete policy, in terms of actual action, um, in terms of real commitment to, to seeing through those objectives from the UK government. Um I, I think Boris likes to paint, you know, now we've got these reasonably um, radical pledges by the UK government for decarbonisation by 2050. I, th- I think Boris likes to use that as a way to um, flaunt his environmental credentials, both at home and, and across the world. And he'll do that. I think we'll see a lot of that in the run up to COP26. But, you know, we, we don't we don't have the actions um, and the policy really to back it up yet at all or anywhere near. And I think that's probably true for a lot of actually, a lot of countries around the world. So uh, this is quite a I suppose a quite demobilizing, quite depressing thing I've just said. I suppose the only thing is to is to focus attention. You know, we we need to. For me, I always look at COP twenty six as as uh, not necessarily where we're going to see loads of action. I, I, I don't know the minutiae of environmental policy and, and exactly what things and pledges we need to be looking out for from each government, although there are loads of sources out there that do. I think for me, it's about can we use COP26 as, as a way to raise awareness? I, I mean, everyone knows about climate change now, but, but just how urgent that threat is and the sorts of solutions we need to be talking about to get there, so like a Green New Deal. You know, can we use the COP26 as as an awareness raiser and as a, as a mobilizer to to you know to get people involved in environmental action? That for for me as someone that you know is isn't an expert on the on the policy side of things, that that's my interest in COP26. How can people in the Labour Party, uh, people in Extinction Rebellion, people uh, in in other environmental movements use that as a chance to engage more people in their work and mobilize more people to put pressure on these governments? Ollie. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, in in regards to Boris Johnson and his and his climate change credentials, I think they're pretty. Um, they're, they're pretty. He likes to pretend, you know, they're, they're pretty good, but they're actually they're actually really not. And when he's not running his mouth about um, the climate change and how good our solar energy is or something like that, he's accepting uh, money from from fossil fuel related institutes and, and all sorts and he's got a really dodgy past let's be honest if you look into it um and in fact the entire conservative party does as well so you know it's it's difficult when you've got um a lock sharma flying around the world i think what was it like 36 different com- countries he, he tries to justify and he's telling other countries about how much they need to do um in in terms of, of climate change and, and getting their right um priorities and and stuff like that but it's it's just it's hard to believe them it's almost like they're gaslighters um and you know they'll look the other way and they're still allowing uh, licenses in the north sea for example they're still proposing to build new coal mines uh, there's all sorts of just dodgy shit that they should just absolutely have no uh, finger in doing at the moment especially when they're trying to um you know be the the world beating world leading climate change <clears throat> um, government that we need them to be, and 
it's yeah it's it's just it's very hip- hypocritical to try and go to other countries to try and convince them to to change their targets or whatever when historically i think i read somewhere that the the britain was you know one of the biggest countries in terms of historic carbon emissions and to try and fly to for example sub-saharan african countries and and the global south and tell them what they need to uh you know decarbonize their economies and stuff like that i think it's just uh yeah just really hypocritical really when we should be the best country in the world for uh green credentials and actually not just uh bullshitting it almost by using uh, blue hydrogen and uh, carbon capture and storage, which are just complete cop-outs. I think the idea of net zero in in uh, summary has not been a very helpful one. And by just kicking it further into the, the future, they're just almost condemning the world to suffer untold um, consequences of, of our inaction, really. Yeah, I, I think that really we we need to have a fundamental shift in how we think about climate change. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had the IPCC's latest report on the situation we, we're in. And in that, they said, well, there were many things you can take away from it. But one of the things that is already clear and staring us in, in the face is that we've damaged the planet to a point where already some of the, the impacts are irreversible. They said that no matter what we do, the sea levels will rise. So any stuff that we do now is to slow that and to protect the the uh, the environment further. So what do we do? Because as, as we've rightly identified, there's so many cop-outs at the moment. There's so many things that we're told we should be doing when at the same time the government's doing the complete opposite, I think one of one of the uh, the things that I I really enjoy um, sort of pointing out is definitely the hypocrisy around taking donations from um, big oil and gas companies, um, big organisations that are uh, contributing to the to the negative uh, impacts on the environment. You know the big polluters in the world. Um, and, and we need to change that. But with that comes a fundamental systemic shift. We cannot afford to only change a few things. You know, yes, I'll, I'll uh, bring a reusable coffee cup to the coffee shop. That's fine. But you've got to do a lot more than that. It's not about just the individual responsibility, but it's about the societal responsibility. So what can we do? Well, what we can do is again use some of the money that we're we're spending on uh, we're spending on oil and gas exploration and 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 setting up new uh, new oil wells and looking at exploring fracking. We can use that money that we're investing into ensuring that establishing yourself in a green lifestyle is not something that just rich people can do. Just look at the availability of electric cars. It's currently not something that if you're on minimum wage, if you if you want to, uh, certainly in Lincolnshire, if you want to get to work, most people need a car. But most people cannot afford an electric or a hybrid car. They're very much out of reach. Again, when it comes to solar panels, they're very expensive. They're, they're not normally subsidised. Only really recently have, have new build houses been mandated to have some sort of green credentials beyond uh, beyond insulating them. 
So again, we need to start looking at, at the systemic things we can do. What can we subsidize? What can we ensure that be it, living a green life isn't just something that if you're rich or if you're well off, you can do, but it's something that everyone can do. So I can get public transport that's affordable to work. So we can all live in live in a house where our, our electricity supply is green and any gas that we use, which should be phased out relatively quickly, any gas we use is offset by uh, other programs. And we're investing money in in, in moving away from gas as quickly as possible in our homes. So it's, it's a radical uh, solution we need. The, the small changes are great and the small changes do have an impact, but we have to recognize that the, uh, that the big impact and the big solutions are where we're gonna solve this problem. So really, I suppose um, coming back to it is where, where does the, the Labour Party stand on this? Um, and where does where does progressive politics go from here? Because as it currently stands, from my perspective, the Green New Deal was a great start point. But the Green New Deal only happens when we're in power. So how do we uh, use this, this policy platform, first of all, to convince people that we need this change, but second of all, get this change into place and hopefully limit the impact of climate change it's now a case of limiting not halting completely because we're past that point bradley yeah i think um so i i think we had some really ambitious um climate policy in 2019 as the labor party um i think we we passed the Green New Deal at a conference. I remember being there. I remember voting in favour of it and being very really happy, um, really proud of that that policy that we had as a party. And it it it, for, it formed a part of our campaign in 2019. I think it probably actually, in in hindsight, should have played a much more prominent role um, in in the campaign in 2019. I think since then we've seen um, we've talked on this podcast before about we've seen you know backsliding from um, start Starmer and the leadership on on the environmental issue. I think. It's fair to say we've, I mean, on, on many issues, we've we've lost that sort of quite distinctive edge, whether you liked Corbyn or not, whether you agreed with the direction of the party or not. Um, I think it's quite clear that on many issues, the Labour Party was at least starting to say something different and it, it had quite a distinctive edge to, to what it was offering in, on, a, on a lot of issues. I think when it comes to the environment, we've lost that edge um, and we, we've lost um, the boldness we had with the Green New Deal um, and the Starmer and our... And it, there, there's a, an attempt by Labour for the Green New Deal to get another policy, um, but, you know, almost a, a reaffirmation of that policy um, on the books for, to be debated at conference this year. Um, and I certainly hope it makes it to conference floor, because what we need now more than ever as Labour activists is to be really holding the leadership to account on this issue. For me, it's a vote winner. Um, you know, if, if you want to look at purely in terms of electoral calculus and ignore all the other moral and existential issues that are, are the Green New Deal combat, purely in terms of electoral viability, um, which is apparently what what the, these people care about, um, then you know I, I think the Green New Deal is an enormous vote winner. It can unite so many different segments of the of the electorate, particularly you know areas where we're, we're at danger of losing support as well, or or have already lost support. You know we we can talk about um, boosting the local economy, creating. Uh, you know, well-paid, unionised jobs um, and bringing back employment and, and economic growth 
um, of a certain kind um, to to various local communities that have seen nothing but decay over the last 20, 30 years. We can talk about, um, you know, tackling climate change, um, investing in renewable energy, all that sort of stuff that's going to really appeal to younger people in particular who who are often uh, climate change is right at the top of their priorities. We can talk about more energy security and reducing bills for people um, in their homes that are struggling to get by. So there's so many different things that a Green New Deal can begin to to combat. To me, not, you know, if the overwhelming moral necessity of, of, of something like a Green New Deal is not enough to convince you that it should be front, front and foremost of Labour's policy pledges, then I think that it's an electoral winner as well. So maybe that can convince some of the um, the, the less um, the less policy orientated people in the party. Absolutely, and I think that one one of the things we should be saying is is that it's not just our, our uh, responsibility to to do this morally, but we can also sell it as that that electorally um, sound policy platform that we can we can use to not just transform the environment but transform the society we live in and fundamentally change how we uh, how we operate as a society ollie what's your take on uh, the next steps then yeah it's it's an interesting one isn't it um i think what bradley's suggesting sounds like a pretty good uh approach to be honest i'd quite like it if you could uh, both make it into high office of the Labour Party and then we wouldn't have to deal with the bullshit that Keir Starmer puts out. But um, it doesn't seem like a priority to him at the moment, as as you rightly uh, pointed out. And I do think it's a, a vote winner as well, as well as being, um, you know, an, an absolutely essential next step, which we need to make um, and, a, and a societal change that needs to happen on a, on a massive scale. Um, what needs to happen next? Yeah, that's the golden question. Um, yeah, I, I think... Absolutely. The the 2017-2019 uh, Labour manifestos would be a great place to start um, in terms of in terms of policy direction. Um, but the societal change, it, it needs to come with really persuasive arguments, um, you know, that really address the, the problems that we're facing at the moment as a society. Um, yeah, I, I just I just wish it was slightly different. And we still had someone with some integrity in charge of the, the Labour Party. And it, I think it would be a much clearer uh, pathway and, and a clearer like means for that to happen as well. Absolutely. And uh, I, I sincerely hope that our, all of our political class, not just uh, the Labour Party, but, but everybody that hasn't yet realised the importance of this issue, um, sits up wakes up and realizes that we we're going to need the sort of political willpower and uh the the political uh agenda that you that you would see in a, in something like a, a war you know an all-out approach where we we fundamentally shift the economy we shift people's attitudes and we say that we're going into this as as a country and and hopefully united with uh with other countries and saying that we we we'll be fighting this tooth and nail. So uh, we'll certainly, uh, I imagine that every other podcast or so, we'll be talking about the climate crisis in one capacity or another. And uh, I can only hope that we uh, will be talking about some positives soon. And that's, that's really where we are, but that really brings us to the end of the podcast and uh, two big issues over the 
the last couple of weeks that have come up. So uh, uh, it's, it's a goodbye from me and uh, a goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. And it's uh, goodbye from Bradley. Bye, folks. See you soon. And it's uh, goodbye from Callum. Stay safe and we'll, we'll speak again soon. And uh, thank you for listening to Podcast 1201.